0: Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. This season's theme is working with Elixir, and today we're talking about training and functional programming with Sasha Yurich. How are you doing, Sasha? Hi, fine, thank you, and thank you for having me on the show. Super glad to have you. As always, my name is Justice Eepen. I am one of the co-hosts of this show. I'm joined by my other co-host, Eric Ostrich. How are you, Eric? Doing good. So, Sasha, we're really excited to have you on the show. You're a very, your household name in the Elixir circle sphere of developers. So I wanted to start off with a question because everyone is familiar with your blog, The Erlangelist. You've been using Elixir since 2013. You must have been one of the very first people to use it. The question is, how did you discover Elixir? What were you doing when you discovered Elixir and how, how did you stumble upon it?
1: Mm, yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. I started actually, let me go just a few years earlier. Uh, I started working in Erlang uh, with Erlang in 2010. And uh, so back then, Elixir didn't even exist. Like as far as I know, there wasn't a single line of code and Jose still didn't uh, read Bruce's book and didn't, you know, have this vision. And uh, anyway, after working for a few years, you know, there were like some things which I really loved about uh, Erlang. And then, you know, some things which, you know, maybe I didn't like so much and I started looking for, for alternatives and kind of bumped in, bumped into Elixir for the very first time, maybe, you know, I don't know, 2011, 12, 12, probably. And back then it was still, when you go to history, you can maybe find it in get it, it was like still uh, quite object oriented. So the early version of Elixir was uh, somehow, you know, it had like, I think, prototype inheritance and stuff like that. And anyway, you know, I saw it, it looked promising, but I didn't really start it, doing anything with it. It's kind of funny that you mentioned the blog it to blog with this question because when I started blogging in early 2013, you know, I figured I wanted to spread the word about Erlang, but I figured, you know, if people see that code, you know, people who are not from the Beam community, many of them would just run away. Not because Erlang syntax is horrible or anything, but simply because it's unusual, you know, with its prolog roots. And so I took another look at Elixir, And I got to say at this point, you know, so this was, if I remember correctly, version 0.7, maybe. And I was absolutely blown away, you know, how mature it looked. Like it already had documentation. It had onboarding for people coming from Erlang. You know, I I started playing with it for the purpose of the blog and I was like so excited with it and uh, I was so pleasantly surprised. I didn't really expect it. And I basically introduced it in production not soon after that in the system that we had based on Erlang. And I got to say here that this is super untypical of me. Like I'm not an early adopter of things. I tend to be very conservative, you know, but it was like so mature because basically Elixir back then, and I, I would say even still today, it's essentially like a thin layer on top of Beam. You know, when you compare Beam to Elixir, there is so much more stuff happening in beam and otp and especially then when it was like in uh, its early phases so that i was pretty confident that you know uh, it's not something risky because you're ultimately running on top of beam so i want to talk a little bit about your book but before we get there i'm going to read
0: to you a little bit out of actually the preface of the book it says that this is you speaking soon i started using elixir to develop new features for my erlang based system this is I guess probably 2013 a few months a few months later i was contacted by michael stevens of manning who asked me if i was interested in writing a book about elixir at the time two elixir books were already in the making after some consideration i decided there was space for another book that would approach the topic from a different angle focusing on elixir concurrency and the otp way of thinking i am amazed that you can have been using a language for months and be contacted to write a book about it can you talk about that a little
1: bit like how did that (laughs)
0: opportunity present
1: itself yeah that was like pretty big stroke of luck i i like to say that i was like in a good virtual place at the right time because yeah i started you know my original plan was to blog about derlang i was kind of frustrated so like here in croatia we're a much smaller community Basically, I wanted to spread the word more to my friends and, you know, coworkers rather than to the outer world. And I figured, you know, since I'm blogging, you know, let's start blogging in English. And then this dragged me to Elixir. And I started, you know, blogging about Elixir at the time when I was maybe one of the five people, maybe ten most who were uh, writing blogging publicly about Elixir, you know. So there weren't a much, uh, so much uh, people, you know, talking about it back then. And then what happened a few months later, Dave Thomas announced the book. You know, I think for me, this was like a pretty huge surprise. Uh, One could tell I was back then on the mailing list before Dave Thomas announced anything. There was like maybe 10 people on the list with nine of us asking questions and Jose providing answers. And, you know, after Dave announced the book, you know, you could just see this influx of people. And I believe that many of people who are like influential, so to speak, in the community came with that first wave. And I guess my theory is that, uh, you know, what happened is Manik picked up the buzz, you know, because there were two books in the making all of a sudden and they were looking for authors. You don't you don't really have a big pool of people for such a young language. And, you know, uh, I jokingly say that, you know, probably out of those other five people, I'm the only one who accepted the offer. <laughs>
2: well, I, I think uh, we as a community are, are pretty glad that you accepted because Pretty much everyone we've talked to has said that your book is the, the best one out there. Is there any reason like why you would think that it's, it would stand above everyone else's?
1: Mm, okay, yeah. So, um, I mean, it's always nice to hear such comments, but I just want to clarify that I personally don't believe that it's best. Rather, I, I don't believe in things like best versus worse or better versus worse. So, this is what uh, says in that uh, statement, which you read Justice earlier, you know, I wanted to, you know, just fill a different kind of space. So, yeah, I think it's a complementary book to other books, like most notably Dave's uh, Programming Elixir. I often read that people read those two books uh, combined and they recommend those two books combined. So, yeah, I don't I don't even think they compete. And so talking about better versus worse doesn't really make sense, you know. But, yeah, basically, you know, when uh, Manning contacted me, I had to, like, figure out a way like, you know, what am I going to do? You know, Dave is writing a book and clearly I cannot do a better job than that, you know, and basically keep my own sanity and to make this effort worthwhile because writing, you know, takes a lot of time. I decided I'm going to attack, you know, this space, which seems that, you know, Dave is not going to treat as extensively as, uh, say, other kind of topics. And that's what I did. And that's what I get, you know, the most positive feedback about. And so these, these would be the parts two and three. Uh, so concurrency and OTP. Personally, I like the way this story unfolds in those second and third part. Uh, so, you know, like the first part is kind of sluggish. It's more more like, you know, declarative. You have this, you have that, and so on. And so you kind of have to survive this first part. But then the story really picks up and things build on top of each other. And so one trick that I did, which I personally like about the book, you know, is that I tend to, you know, I, I sort of describe my own mistakes and let you learn from my mistakes, even by making those same mistakes. In the sense that, like, in, say, one chapter, you will write some naive concurrency implementation, and then you feel good about yourself at the end of the chapter. And then at the beginning of the next chapter, I explain, you know, what are the problems with it? You know? And so we tear it apart and we add something new. And then in the next chapter, then I tell you, and this is also wrong because of some other things, you know, and so it's not like a straight vertical line from start to finish. It's more like a zigzag pattern, which is by the way, quite realistic. This is literally what I did on my own when I was, you know, working with Erlang because back then we had much less resources. Like when I started, even Fred's book, Learning Summer Long, wasn't available as far as I remember. So I had to, you know, learn a lot of stuff uh, from my own mistakes. And I basically wanted to kind of save you that trouble, but, but at the same time show you, you know, why are we doing those things? Not just, you know, you should do it like this, but also explain the reasoning and the context behind it. So...
0: I want to ask a little bit more about the book, but I kind of want you to extrapolate to a different concept, which is my read of Elixir in Action is that it is targeted at it's for intermediate and advanced developers, right? To put it simply, I I don't think an entry level developer would have a super easy time understanding the concepts that are working their way through. I'm curious, like, do you have and when I say entry level, I mean, like, like super fresh out of college or even, you know, going into a CS program, do you have? Any thoughts on how you would introduce the programming concepts in Elixir to novice programmers, to people who don't know how to program? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so first, uh, I agree with you. So Elixir in action definitely assumes that the reader is uh, otherwise an uh, expert programmer, like not super expert, but you basically know things like loops and uh, stuff like that functions and so on. And in that sense, it definitely doesn't work for a novice programmer. I would say that maybe Dave's book is certainly better in that regard. And speaking about worse versus uh, better, you know, here's an, a true anecdote or a true story for my current clients, you know, very big things. Uh, I hope that we're going to later speak a little bit more about what I'm doing there. But one part of the story is that I shaped the onboarding program for the new people, you know, so like the literature literature that they are supposed to be reading. Funnily enough, I included Dave's book, but I didn't include Elixir in Action, you know, not because I think Elixir in Action is worse or something, but because essentially, they are working more with functional aspect of, you know, Elixir, and they are also working a lot with Absinthe and Ecto and Phoenix. And these libraries hide all this OTP and gen servers and supervisors behind the scene. And so they don't need to focus so much on that aspect and they need to focus on other aspects so you know i would say but this is still you know in the expert space i would say that dave's book to me seems gentler to you know people coming to the language but when it comes to completely new programmers i feel that this is a space that still hasn't been properly attacked so to speak one book that i'm aware of is by ryan big it's called joy of elixir i didn't read it i don't know if you you know If it's like for sale or is it finished, what's the status of it? But I remember that Ryan announced it like uh, maybe two years ago or something like that. And it is specifically targeting, you know, people who are are completely new to programming. That's the only resource that I can think of. And so this is like, I think, a big, big problem or uh, something that someone, you know, (laughs) needs to do. What do you think the gap
0: is? Like Elixir seems like a very syntactically friendly language along the lines of Ruby. What? Is it just a matter of time that the ecosystem hasn't matured yet? Or are there things fundamental to Elixir that are challenging for a non-programmer to grok?
1: So I don't think it should be a problem, except, you know, someone needs to make that effort, you know, because basically the people completely new to programming, you know, have to grok variables and uh, functions and return values and conditionals and loops and stuff like that. One could argue that actually learning Elixir should be easier for them than for us coming from object-oriented paradigm. You know, we had to unlearn a lot of stuff. I did like quite a lot of bad things, uh, which I'm not even willing to publicly admit, especially in my early Erlang days, you know. So when those people are completely, you know, fresh, open minds, and they just need to be taught that. But basically, all the material that we have, for better or worse, one could say probably worse assumes that the reader is, you know, somehow educated programmer, you know, to some extent. And yeah, it's basically lacking other than Ryan's book. But, you know, I don't really know what's the status of the book itself. Maybe also there is a book uh, published by Prague. It's called Learn Functional Programming with Elixir. So again, I haven't read this book, but at least, you know, from what I've kind of seen from the, Outline. It also seems like it could be kind of geared toward people who are, you know, less familiar with programming in general.
2: Yeah, I, I uh, definitely did some bad object-oriented things when I first started <laughs> with Elixir. But I guess moving on from from that, you sort of mentioned that you work at very big things. Who is that, and and what do you do there?
1: Uh, so I so very big thing things is a digital agency. So they basically, you know, do like software on order so to speak you know companies come to them uh, they want to build some kind of software they don't have their own development and then very big things, you know, builds product for them, custom-made, tailor-made products in different domains. Like there are examples in e-learning, in uh, health, for example. So things like that, you know, a bunch of different kind of systems or uh, web apps, if you will. These apps are admittedly not like anything on Twitter scale or Amazon scale, you know, as, as it usually goes in the agency. They are more like, I would say, small to low medium sized you know, uh, shorter projects. So you have like uh, initial bursts of development in the uh, early months, and then things become more stable, and maybe less actively developed, but still maintained. Yeah, very big things contacted me, it's now about, I think, eight months, I've been working with them. They've been existing, you know, for I think, uh, maybe a year or two before that. And they basically, you know, what, what they did is, did a bunch of things, right, you know, so one of them is that, They separated the development between front-end and back-end. So, you know, you're either a front-end or a back-end developer, I believe that it makes sense. You know, a few years ago, I would disagree with that approach, but these days, you know, the technologies are so complex that I believe that, you know, splitting those roles uh, makes sense. And they standardized technology uh, stack or the languages on uh, both sides. And in particular, on backend, they use exclusively Elixir, you know. And so they've been shipping already some uh, products or some software, you know, before my time, they've shipped them successfully. But uh, somehow, you know, internally, the team felt that something is off, like, you know, in the code, they weren't really sure, you know, how they're supposed to be writing things. They tried out different approaches. They weren't really completely clear, you know, what worked, what didn't need needed someone to kind of ground them to you know maybe uh, focus them on how things should be done and also to try to establish common patterns and code style things like that between different projects because you know a single project itself in an agency is not challenging but the business as an agency business of an agency as a whole is challenging because you know you have a lot of dynamics so you know today you're working on one project and maybe tomorrow you switch to another uh, who, you know, someone else wrote. And so you, you want that code to be kind of as close as possible so that uh, you don't really have to uh, spend time figuring out different code idioms and whatnot. I mean, the domain is, of course, going to be different, but the code itself, of course, should resemble as much as possible. It should be clear to everyone, not just, you know, like, I look at your code and think it's crap and you look at my code and think it's crap. You know, that that sucks, especially in such a dynamic environment such as agency and so yeah we've been working a lot on that pretty much for the past eight months you know so trying to establish uh, some common i'm not going to really say architecture but yeah basically patterns and designs and software and practices and things like that
0: can you talk a little bit well first of all the, i think the question is like how many people are you
1: operating with over there that's a good question because it changes <laughs> but uh, roughly the the backend team now is i think about 10 people give or take Okay, so, so you're working with about 10
0: people, you're trying to manage moving them toward a more conventional style of programming Elixir. Can you talk a little bit like more specifically about how you determine what is a convention, what is an idiom, maybe speak about specific idioms that you maybe hammer home first or were the most important when you were getting started in the role?
1: Yeah, so uh, of course, I mean, this is really a slippery slope, you know. We often, you know, just when we discuss, we say this is idiomatic, and And no, this is idiomatic. And like, who gets to decide what's idiomatic, you know? So I usually, you know, classify things from what I've seen in the practice. And so I can say, you know, I didn't really see this thing being done so often. But I would say even more important than that is like, thinking about what does it bring? Is this pattern useful, you know, in the grand scheme of things? Like, does it clarify things or does it make sure that, you know, maybe code is more reliable or something like that? So we try to think in that nature. But maybe going back to the second part of the question, maybe let me tell you a little bit about how the mode of operation goes. Essentially, when I came there, you know, I knew that what I wanted to do is basically going to uh, revolve around pull requests and constant code review. So this was like the the most or the first thing that I wanted to introduce. You know, I don't really like I had those experiences in the past when I was like more a junior programmer when, you know, some big name or big architect would come and they would draw some boxes and establish some, uh, you know, enterprise bus or something like that and they, they would go away. So I didn't want to do such abstract things, you know. I wanted to be close to the code. I wanted to review and see, you know, the problems that they're facing. And obviously, of course, I spent some time reading the existing code that they had. And so, yeah, the the thing that we established was code review, where I basically take a look at what are they doing to make that work. We introduced a lot of well, some automatic checks, you know, such as checking for warnings on the CI or doing uh, checking for formatting. And then maybe most importantly credo you know like literally you, you're familiar with credo both right yeah so credo is literally like our style guide our style guide document it's markdown so i don't know how many pages it has but it's not long and i would say that 80 percent of that document explains how to set up credo and you know how to use it what's the purpose and then there is maybe one or two mechanical rules in the style guide, which so far I wasn't able to enforce with Credo. I mean, it goes to say that those mechanical rules are actually not followed. You forgot about them, you know, because you have to always keep in mind to do stuff that you cannot be enforced with tooling, you know? So we essentially, we are using Credo as much as you can. Like I saw a couple of different things, which I don't like. So for example, alias foo as bar or maybe alias foo.bar as foobar, you know. So they had a bunch of those things previously, and I pretty much banned uh, the usage of alias as. And I rarely like to speak in absolutes, but I would say that alias as probably, you know, I can't think of a single example ever when I have used it or, or where I would find it useful. So we introduced a custom credo check to verify this on the CI, of course. And yeah, we submitted that check to the upstream to the Credo project. We also introduced, for example, a Credo check, which verifies the module layout. So the module layout itself is consistent. Like uh, you start with module doc, if you use that, and then uh, you have uh, use and then import and then require and then alias then types, public functions, and so on and so forth. This one is also pending for Credo upstream as we speak. That, that's definitely one important thing. But those are all like little things uh, in the grand scheme of things, you know. So I used to be uh, actually an opponent of both automatic formatters and linters because I believe that they don't actually help the code clarity. You know, I mean, you can have the code which follows all the linter rules and you can have properly formatted code which is still like uncomprehensible piece of crap or pile of crap, you know? And at the same time, you can have code which is has like some custom formatting that is still easy on the eye and you're failing some linter checks, but the code is beautiful to read, you know? So those, there is like a weak correlation between the two. But the big point of those tools is to, you know, get these minor nitpicks out of the picture. So like when I look at the code review, I don't have to worry about those things. And, you know, not just me, everyone is reviewing, you know? So the reviewer basically, can focus on the actual things, on the actual proper big issues, you know, so I kind of turned my thinking about those things. And now I'm a huge fan of Credo. I think it's one of the most indispensable tools in our ecosystem. But yeah, then uh, basically, when it comes to sort of code design, the big idea is basically, we try to go with Phoenix contexts. uh, And what this really means is we want to separate interface logic from the or we want to separate domain level logic from the interface logic, which is, you know, like we are using GraphQL, otherwise maybe you'd be using REST, so those things shouldn't be mixed. Also, I have introduced type specifications for public API functions because, because I believe that types are first and foremost about documenting, you know, explaining what actually is the thing that is coming into the function and uh, what is the function returning back. When I was looking at the code before that, you could see a lot of, you would have a lot of uncertainties and entropy, if you will. Like you read the code and you're not really sure if something coming in is a map or is it a keyword. And then they had a bunch of these nil checks, you know, basically defensive programming, which you add as you go along. Like you're not really certain if something can be nil or not. And I remember I was just reading, you know, some small, uh, single piece of functionality, single small use case. And it took me like an hour or two to figure it out. And then I could tell that a bunch of these if checks were completely redundant. You know, the thing could not be nil. But you cannot really tell that when you're looking at there's no type specifications, there's nothing. And so it's kind of hard to look at that. And so we grounded this, you know, like uh, the whole idea, the big idea, and it's not really so complex, is that the system should be described and uh, understandable at the context level, at the level of the domain of the intended behavior. You know? So so when you, when you look at the context and the functions, you see those functions, which are essentially use case operations, you see the types. So they tell you what's coming in, what's coming out, And based on that alone, you can already get a huge grasp about the system itself.
0: So you do use Dialyzer as a rule on projects?
1: Yeah, so uh, we use Dialyzer on CI. I got to say that, you know, Dialyzer is like, it is way less than perfect. And this is a huge understatement, you know. So uh, I started first using Dialyzer maybe six years ago. And in my first year, this was like such a pain. You know, I would sometimes spend four hours uh, figuring out what exactly is wrong. So once you get over that cliff, it actually becomes kind of easier. And now most often I can, you know, figure out problems uh, pretty quickly. And if it's like some intricate problem in the library, maybe it takes me about an hour, which which isn't bad, you know, given that uh, we are talking about the Dialyzer, you know. So yeah, we're using Dialyzer, but as I said, it's far from perfect. It's often silent. So it basically doesn't often report possible issues. And then when it does, it gives you like this huge spit out of, you know, something. (laughs) And somewhere in there is, in fact, typically the information that you need, but it's really hard to figure out what what is it telling you. But I mean, it's the only thing or the best best thing we have to keep specs in check. And specs are the important thing. Specs are the documentation. We want to have at least some assurance that those specs are correct and Dialyzer does a Relatively good job. So
2: one of our uh, past guests was Chris Keithley, and he's been working on something called Norm. I'm wondering if, if you've had a chance to look at that as a dialyzer alternative.
1: Yeah, I, I had a chance to look at that. I'm kind of sorry that, Keith, uh, that Chris is now not here. I think that we would hear like a long rant about how Norm is actually, does not aim to substitute uh, specs and dialyzer, you know. Norm is a super interesting project. It's like, uh, what word would I say? It's like very close for me. I'm very close to using it, you know, so not just on the roadmap but something that i really want to give a try someplace ultimately though basically i agree i would agree with chris we had like a recently an exchange about it on the on elixir forum that you know those are two different things operating at different level you know so norm is like a very rich kind of checker but it operates at runtime ultimately dialyzer and type specs are you know compile time checks and so what that means is that one in my view I'm not really sure that NORM can become useful to the point where I will not need specs. Because again, specs are documentation, you know, so it like limits the amount of possibilities. You know, when you have, for example, function accepting params, what are params? What is that? Is it a map? It is a keyword, what are possible keys? What are possible values? There's like a huge amount of uncertainty. And to understand that you have to go through the call step deep down to figure out what goes on. Specs basically you know, narrow it down to the point where you say, okay, it is a keyword list. I can have a key foo and I can have a key bar. And the first one is a string and the second one is an integer. And you already know so much more, You know, like a bunch of hypotheses go uh, off the table. Norm kind of can do this. Ultimately it's a runtime check. And so what this means is that you can still enter or you will enter this function, well, not the function, but you know the wrapper that Norm builds with some invalid parameters, which Norm will, will then discard. But ultimately, this means that if I write like a runtime check of my own, there's a possible bug in there and I have to test the function with invalid inputs. In contracts, when I'm writing specs, when I say like this thing accepts integers, I will not even test it with strings because that's basically an invalid input for me. You know so also there's a question of integration with tooling although uh, my impression is that chris has some plans for that so i mean specs are super cool integrated with tooling so you see them in generated docs you see them in ix helper output when you do h some function for example you see them in uh, vs code uh, if you're using elixir language server and like reading the code you know i used to i spent a couple of years my first few years writing and reading the code without specs then after specs And for me, there is like no doubt, you know, specs are way, way better. They make it much more easier to understand the code to figure it out. And they can also help figuring out design problems because when you see a spec, you can sometimes see that design itself uh, of the API is not well thought out or or well separated.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you use them in your workflow or how you implement them in your workflow? Are you writing the spec after you've implemented the function or are you writing the spec as a part of the design process?
1: So I personally write it after I implement, not even a function, you know, so somewhere near the end when the functionality is done, so to speak. So, I mean, I uh, usually try to keep my pull requests relatively short, and I also insist, you know, for the team at VBT to do that thing too, because otherwise you can't really grasp a pull request. So this means, you know, either I'm gonna do some minor use case, if it's larger, I'm gonna split it as I go along. I try to make specs near the end of the writing procedure because while I'm writing, it's still all in my head. So, you know, I understand that code. Therefore, I don't need specs and I find them uh, somewhat limiting in the sense of, you know, exploring things because coding is uh, way more than implementing. It's exploring, you know, I don't really know exactly how am I going to solve it until I we're consoling it, you know. So uh, that's why I basically don't write specs until the very end. There is some merit, admittedly, and I have been thinking about these ideas both about specs. And um, again, I argue specs are documentation. So, also about the documentation, like this happens with my open source projects. Uh, and also, it happened with some, you know, abstractions that I used to write, especially for my former company. So, like, I write everything, there are tests, everything is nice. I start working on the documentation and specs. And in the middle of it, I see the design problem as I'm writing the documentation, you know. And I'm starting to think maybe I should do the documentation first, because that would, you know, uncover it. So I still haven't tried. It. And again, the problem is that I'm I'm not really sure. What I'm going to do until I start coding, you know, so for better or worse, uh, I have to explore things through coding. I mean, sure, I spend a little time or sometimes even more than a little uh, thinking and premeditating about things. But ultimately, whatever I come up with, you know, it's like at at the best, maybe 50% on the right track and I have to code. So anyway, I try to postpone those things to the very end when the product is polished. Mm. Have you read Hackers and Painters by Paul Graham? I have, although 15 years ago, so I don't really remember anything except that he's using uh, Lisp. <laughs> yeah, but- he, he has that whole metaphor
0: about the hacker as a painter, someone who needs to be able to play. It's a defensive dynamic typing, right? He, he basically says that, you know, being able to throw together code without the imposition of a strong type system is valuable to somebody who wants to move very quickly. And I think that's kind of why Elixir is the best of both worlds. And also, I was also going to mention, we need to have you and Chris Keithley on the show together. Okay. Yeah, we're going to make that happen. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The real question here, though, is you mentioned, uh, I think actually before we started recording that you have a set of common abstractions and helpers that you've been building out at very big things. We actually have something like that that Eric's developed called Stein, I'd love to compare notes. Is this something that you can tell us more about? Like what are some of the specific, most useful abstractions and helpers you've built out? Is it open source? Can we look at it? That kind of thing.
1: Okay. So it's still very early days. Currently, it's kind of open sourced more unintentionally. Well, I mean, there are like, there are no special or there are no, there are no professional secrets in there, but it's basically open source more for our convenience in the sense that uh, it was easier to set up, you know, the CI and stuff like that. We are actually in the process of moving this to closed source simply to avoid polluting the public space. And then we want to have more structured way of open sourcing things, you know, like more polished with a license and stuff like that. But anyway, so it's currently, I wouldn't say anything spectacular is happening here. It grows organically from the bottom up, so to speak. And so what that means is, as I read those pull requests and what the things that they are doing, and I mean, since I joined, uh, there were like, I think, three or four projects, greenfield projects started. So, you know, I've seen stuff happening from uh, the very beginning in those new projects. And you can see that there are patterns repeating and emerging. And so I try to, you know, when I see like this repetition, I kind of try to, extract it but in a very gentle and conservative way so I'm trying to be careful not to build like these huge abstractions that you know solve anything short of the world hunger and I basically you know wanna go with like maybe I'm gonna solve part of your problem but it's going to be like very lightweight and at least it's going to be kind of extensible and replaceable and it's gonna be something that you can actually grasp how it works. And when you go to the code you're gonna be able to read that code to figure it out, because it's not complex by itself, you know. So some examples include some common logic for the authentication. We don't use anything uh, third party, I basically kind of, you know, suggested and it was accepted that previously they have been using just Guardian and I suggested that we stop using even that and uh, JWTs, so JWT tokens, right, at all, and we are just basically using Phoenix token mechanism. But there are, you know, some like nuances with authentication, especially on the business side. So like you want to make sure that you're always validating or invoking password comparison, even when the user is not there. So to avoid timing attacks, right? And things like that. And the same thing with, uh, say, password reset functionality. So we kind of extracted those things into a common helper. So basically, you just fill in the blanks. You say, this is my repo module. This is my uh, account stable. And you know the code solves that uh, logic on the business layer, but you still have to implement the UI layer. So it's not going to do that for you. It's it trying to be like very lightweight. Another example is something which I'm hoping I'm gonna I'm going to publish soon. You know, like properly open source or not me. You know, we the the team, it's the whole team. And so this is the thing about. Uh, operator configuration, so I was able to make like a lightweight abstraction which bypasses and doesn't really use application configuration at all. This is, by the way, a thing where Chris and I strongly agree. We are like sort of huge opponents of the mainstream style of using config scripts and uh, app config. So I basically wrote this small uh, module where helper, which allows you to consolidate the operator config. And operator config is the stuff that you have to provide at runtime in the production system. Or the staging system but you know the product itself so like the database connection i don't know uh, aws uh, api uh, key and stuff like that and only those things are uh, consolidated in that module this is the elixir code it gives you strong typing so uh, it actually generates specs so like if i say that connection pool is integer then it's going to convert it into integer and the function itself actually spec as uh, returning an integer this is what the abstraction does for you you just say i'm expecting a connection pool and it has to be an integer and everything else is kind of generated for you. So it gives you strong typing, it gives you compile time checks. Like if you write connection poll instead of connection pool, you're going to get a compile time error because you're actually invoking function and not some key from some magical key value store. And this thing can generate template configuration for operators. So like basically you declared what are the input parameters to your system and then you invoke a single command, you know, like mix run foobar, and it spits out .env file with all the parameters required. Those which are optional are commented and the default value is provided. Otherwise, you know, it gives you which type you have to provide. When you start the system, if something is missing, then it's going to report that it's missing. Under the hood, it's using Ecto for uh, these kind of things. So that's kind of interesting. This is something i Really excited about, and so that's another example of things with it, you know. But nothing like super abstract and super complex. It's good to hear that uh, the helper library I've been working on is 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 pretty
2: similar to that. So it's it's cool to hear you you doing something pretty similar.
1: Yeah, so I'm trying to like this whole idea that I'm trying to instill, uh, and a lot of it is based on my past mistakes, you know, that I did as a programmer. Is you know trying to avoid these huge complex abstractions too early because those tend to be quite rigid. And ultimately, you know, they do more harm than they do good, you know. But on the other hand, I mean, you still have to solve some repeating pattern and boilerplate i mean these days you know i see when i when i look at twitter you know it seems that kind of pendulum swings so you know i'm from the generation you know we were taught that you know any duplication is bad do not repeat yourself and i remember back when i was still a student you know i did part-time c plus plus teaching and this is one of the things that i would teach you know people who were learning c plus plus you know just you know avoid duplication duplication is bad now these days we kind of enter it seems to me sometimes that we go into this other extreme where, you know, like uh, duplication is not bad at all. And it's neither, you know, duplication can be an indication that something is missing. But of course, if you don't have a good abstraction, then uh, it's probably worth delaying, you know, extracting it, extracting it into anything, because I do agree that the wrong abstraction is way worse than uh, a little bit of code duplication. Yeah. And I can testify, you know, I had this library called Xector, maybe you have heard of it, which was kind of trying to solve some uh, superficial duplication on GenServer server. And ultimately, even I gave up on using it because it was like a really wrong abstraction. And uh, more recently, I just published, you know, on GitHub, like, don't use this thing, please.
0: I think it takes a lot of courage to admit when you were wrong, especially after you've invested a lot into a project. So I admire that. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit more about training. The last question is specifically around testing, unit testing, feature testing. How do you brain that into the organization how do you encourage it talk a little bit about unit testing to start because that's sort of what you mentioned but i'm also curious how you do integration testing feature testing specifically at very big things
1: yeah so so this is a very uh, good question that you know opens up a lot of teams first thing you know uh, the team did testing before uh, my time and this is a good thing you know they had a ci set up they were writing a, a lot of tests in fact So that's definitely, you know, not something that I had to, you know, instill into their culture. However, what I noticed, and I, you know, I don't really have a sample, but, you know, speaking with people, I feel that this is a a frequent practice is that like these tests are kind of not really well grounded. And, you know, what I'm going to say maybe goes against the mainstream of today's thinking, but I think it's important to say it so. A couple of months ago, you know, I think maybe, I'm not really sure if I was even working with Word, things, I said that like the, the modern notion of unit versus integration tests doesn't make sense to me at all because when you have a unit test typically what people think is a test which tests a single class for example or a single module and you kind of mock out everything else in a hexagonal pattern and then if you you know your test combines two classes or modules then it's called integration test and to me this is pointless because you know most tests would be integration or otherwise you would end up with a bunch of mocks And then I ended up, you know, I stumbled upon a talk which is called TDD, Where Did It All Go Wrong? And so this talk is by Ian Cooper. It's about a few years from a few years ago and for me it's quite possibly the most important technical talk of the past decade that i have uh, personally heard you know so i totally recommend this talk and what ian does is he basically goes back to the teaching of kent Beck and uh, martin fowler and you know like so-called let's call them the original agile crew Basically, the big point is test behavior, not implementation details. And this really resonates well with me. And this is the kind of culture that I want to instill in very big things. And I think it has been working really well well for us. And so what this means is like at the very highest level, I mentioned earlier, we are separating, you know, context from the interface layer, like refQL, mostly in our case. So we are writing our tests first and foremost at the interface layer we are testing like, say, some GraphQL query field or mutation field. Now, the way this works is as follows. So you have like your classical test, AAA pattern, right? You have Arrange, Act, and then Assert. So you basically bring the system into the desired state, then you invoke something that you're actually testing, and then you check the output, the return value, maybe some side effects and so on and so forth. The way it works for us is then we say like, let's say that I introduced the mutation, uh, which is called login, so for logging in, or let's say that, you know, we can speak in REST, let's say that I introduced a, a login action, you know? So what I'm gonna do is I'm going to invoke first in the arrange phase, I'm gonna invoke register, Function from the context layer to actually register a user. I'm not gonna insert it into database. This is an important thing, you know. So database is an implementation detail, very important implementation detail. You know, it cannot be swapped or something like that, but still it's an implementation detail. So I'm invoking a business level function to register a user, and then I'm going to invoke the, let's say, rest action to log the user in with those same credentials. Yeah, I see some surprise looks. We can uh, expand on this a bit more. So, I mean, this is what I think of as integration testing. No, nah, no. Nah. Nah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, it's what we call it, right? So it depends on one one's well, own well, definition. Feature testing, right? Like
0: this idea that testing what the user expects to receive or get at the end of the day.
1: So for me, when we talk about integration testing, integration test would be like, how does my system integrate with an external system such as, I don't know, Twilio, Twitter, AWS, things like that. This to me means integration testing. What we're talking about here is still a part of that same system implementation. So, uh, so how does it differ from feature testing? Well, in this particular case, we are certainly testing of well, I wouldn't even call it, yeah, registration is a feature. Yeah, we're registering a feature, okay. if you will. Yeah, I'm yeah.
0: sorry, I use integration testing and feature testing sort of interchangeably. I do know that people talk about integration testing to mean sort of like the the integration, the interface, but sorry, continue, so
1: go on. Yeah. It's all about naming you know so i mean but anyway let's go back to this test and then we can expand some more so yeah again in the arrange phase i will invoke the, the context function in the act phase we have settled on invoking the like the rest using phoenix helpers so we're not actually doing http requests right because phoenix with its test helpers allow you to set up the con object and then you basically you know just go through the con object And then ultimately, you know, we will verify the outcome of, you know, what this returns. And so the test could look like, for example, when we're talking about, say, login functionality, we basically, the test verifies the expected behavior. Like if a user successfully registered with some combination of login and password, they can also successfully authenticate with that same combination of login and password. Notice that there is like no database at all mentioned in the test. Of course, it exists behind the scene, right? But we do not like generate some factories, So database factories are pretty much abolished now from our project. And we basically want to go, want to set up the system in the desired state using the API and this is important because it gives us confidence, and that's what we want from tests, you know. So, like, I want to say something controversial here. Like, I'm not really a proponent of very mechanical interpretation of TDD, so tests do not drive my development, you know, requirement and analysis drive my development. So, like, you know, my superior or say my client comes to me and says, Sasha, can you solve this problem for us? And then I do some thinking, or the team does some thinking. The outcome of that is that some code has to be written, and so this is what drives the development you know the stuff that we have to produce tests serve to support the development in the sense that you know we can write some code which gives us confidence that this thing is actually working as it's supposed to be working in the process of course because tests are indeed the client of the code one of the clients of the code I may end up, you know, opening up some, some like function in the module, or maybe returning some value, which is needed only for the test. So in that way, tests do kind of drive the design as well. But tests are certainly not the main driver of the development. It's the feature that has to be implemented. And tests are there for me to give me confidence, you know, is this thing working as it's supposed to be. And so we start from the top level, you know, the the maximum possible level that we can, and that's that's for us, you know the API. In our case, it's actually GraphQL, but you know it can be rest. and we drill down if we need to. So like for example, let's say that as a part of the functionality, I write the cache service. So you can't really test the cache service through the API. Maybe the cache is not working, but the API is serving everything from the database, right? And so you need to go one layer deeper like in the implementation. You will pick the abstraction and you will test its behavior but you will still not do like hexagonals and mocks and stuff like that because you know it's still testing the behavior and this is like the huge big important message that ian sends like test uh, behavior not implementation details and he drives a very important point when you do refactoring you know so by the very definition when you go back to the martin fowler book you know refactoring means that you're changing the internals of your code without changing the behaviors and so, tests. When you do refactoring, tests should not break, you no, know, unless you, you made a bug. You no. Know? What you're saying right now
0: about focusing on the, be, the the desired behavior in order to instill confidence in the developer speaks so deeply to what I've constantly been harping on at Smart Logic. Anytime we talk about testing, it's never about like 100% test coverage. It's always about does this prove that your system works as you expect it to work like does it allow you to refactor confidently does it allow you to deploy confidently like it needs to enhance confidence and so yeah when we were talking about the the different terms it was really just about getting on the same page semantically because as far as the philosophy is concerned I'm 100% in agreement with you the person who put me onto this I think initially back in my Rails days was Justin Searles. So I'll shout him out and link to his blog in the notes. But yeah, continue if you if you're if you feel like it about this example and, and sort of what your philosophy on testing is and why it's not exactly unit testing.
1: Basically Ian makes a good case, you know, so again he goes back to the- to teaching of teaching of Kent back like uh, when you're refactoring uh, and if your tests are very micro at a micro level, then the code is going to break and you're going to end up with, you know, like say you change the name of a database table, for example, and a bunch of tests, you know, use the test factories, and then a bunch of tests are going to break, even though the system is working and the code is working right. And otherwise, if you have like these hexagonals, uh, so you mock out dependencies, so you can test just a single class or a single module. And you effectively end up uh, testing, you know, like if I invoke function foo, it will invoke bar with the first two parameters and bars with the third one. You know, what, what does it even mean? You know, like the test is completely unclear, but it's gonna break as soon as you change something in internals, so and you're gonna get, get a bunch of errors. And I mean, Ian actually makes a very interesting case, which is kind of a lost and forgotten art so the term unit actually, according to Ian, refers to the test itself, not to the thing under the test. Basically, the idea is, you know, before this was uh, like coined this term, they had like tests which would trip over each other, you know, so like you run foo, and it compromises the outcome of bar, you know, like two different tests. And so the term unit means that the test is a unit in a sense that it does not compromise the execution of other tests. No, maybe you cannot run them in parallel. It depends. Either way, it means that like I can run foo and then bar, or I can run bar and then foo. And no matter what, does the test succeed or fail, crashes, unhandled exception, or whatnot? You know, one test will not affect the outcome of the other. This is what the word unit means. And in that sense, even an integration test is a unit test. That also explains why you can use xunit to write integration tests. For me, and again, I mean, this is what Ian also very nice, uh, nicely puts, you know. But again, even this is not even his invention. He just goes back to the original teaching, you know, like of Kent Back mostly. So integration, what we spoke about earlier, is about integrating with external API, like say external microservice, like uh, AWS client, things like that, you know. So these are not the things that you normally run. You want to mock out those things because you don't want your test to say fail because the network is down or stuff like that so this, this is something that uh, say i would run maybe on a daily basis like a nightly build to check you know whether i'm actually using the real stuff as i'm supposed to be using if that's possible to set up of course you know it always depends so that's the integration test for me
2: yeah and i guess this is sort of hobby back a tiny bit when we were you were talking about mocking the other the other super scary thing with with mocking and probably why i haven't used like mocks or anything like that recent in elixir times is like if you mock out other behaviors your tests are passing but maybe they're actually broken because you've implemented the underlying details that are now changed but your tests need to be updated so that's another Mm -hmm. scary thing
1: exactly (laughs) yeah Exactly, and ultimately, I mean, you have to. You still aren't sure, you know, that uh, you, the whole combination of these things work. You know, you know. I asked the developer once. I was arguing with, and I asked them, like, you know, okay, you're testing foo and you're testing bar, but how do you know that they work together? And he just said, I just know, you know. But that's not not really a correct answer, right? You know, I, I want confidence, and this is what what I want to ask. You know, from every test, you know, like you you can do a kind of a Marie Kondo thing, if you will. Does it spark confidence? because this is what the test should be all about, exactly. And so if it doesn't, throw it away, you know? And so for example, we have this thing on a couple of projects, you know, we started working at the context level. Uh, So the API with uh, the front-end team was still not fleshed out and we started working at the business domain level and implemented tests at the business domain. Once we added the GraphQL, the interface layer, we had to implement tests there because we wanna make sure that it actually works as it's supposed to be working. And then, you know, we had a discussion and said, okay, now we're gonna throw away these domain level tests because they are basically duplication of the ones we have at the higher, the wider area of the code. Why would we wanna keep the duplicate of pretty much the same thing, right? Right. Ah, oh, wow. That There is so much there and I'm
0: so glad that we got into it because I think the testing is super duper important. Philosophy of testing is very, very important. You probably just saved a lot of young developers, a lot of time and energy. So thank you, Sasha. I think that that is about time for us. Do you have any final plugs asks for the audience? If you want to talk about where people can find you, where people can find the Earl Angelist, anything that you want to ask from the audience now is a good chance to do that
1: no i haven't really prepared for this but you know like if you see me at some event you know come and say hi you know i like to meet people and hang out and you know meet different people so uh, otherwise you know i hope that you enjoy this show take a visit at the orlangelist so i don't blog often but at least you know when i do i try to make it count maybe read elixir in action if you haven't i hope you're not going to be disappointed it has some good reviews that's basically it so thank you for having me on the show Thank you for coming, Sasha. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Everyone listening, go check out Sasha's material at the Earl Angeles. Go check out Elixir in Action. Uh, As you know, we try to bring you a super high quality podcast. Sasha has done an excellent job at creating super high quality podcasts. Written materials on the Elixir and Erlang world. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to Sasha Urich and my co host Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects building web applications in Elixir, Rails, React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to hit that like button if you're listening somewhere with a like button don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player you can also find us on instagram and twitter and facebook also leave us reviews on your favorite podcast players those reviews really count for a lot help us climb the charts and make us the best elixir podcast we can be also you can find me on twitter at justice Epen. you can find eric on twitter at eric ostrich join us again next week on elixir wizards for more working with elixir